The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Stories of people trying to survive, stories of people living in a really new place, stories of people living in this physical environment that can be kind of unforgiving. There's things about the quote unquote Western, you know, that just kind of like make for good narrative. Yeah. I wanted to deepen and question the idea of what is a Western, but I did, you know, really also want to tell a fun story and like try to have fun with it, try to have fun with, you know, the ideas of genre. I mean, the book deals with these really serious things, but it's a novel I want I, I want to entertain. And and so I, I did I did try to do that and try to sort of think about like, what is fun about these kinds of stock stories that people tell? Why do people keep telling them? What are what are the good and interesting elements you can kind of maintain and use to your own devices? Okay, here we go. Saddle up, boys and girls. We're headed out to the Old West today to light some campfires and punch some doggies. We'll rustle up some cattle, rob a train or two, and head for the hills one step ahead of the sheriff and his posse. Tomorrow, we'll meet the sheriff in the center of town just outside the swinging doors of the saloon where we plan to have a showdown, a quick draw battle. Just us in our black hat against the shiny badge of the man in the white hat. He wants to hang us, you see, and we don't want to live by his rules. We have our own moral code out here in the Old West. But the railroad coming through has changed everything, and the Indians are out there ready to attack us, and the Mexicans too, and our lifestyle is a-changing. But our horses still ride good, and our vittles keep our bellies full. Forgive me. We're actually not headed into the world of Western cliches, but to an exploration of Western tropes. What is a Western? What made that genre so popular for so long? Around the world, where did Westerns go? When did revisionist Westerns begin? Spoiler alert, they're at least 50 years old. And how, in 2020, can a thoughtful person, a novelist, tap into the spirit of the Old West in a way that isn't hokey or tired or overly simplistic. We're going to be joined by Anna North, who you heard at the beginning, author of the new novel Outlawed, to help us answer some of these questions. That's all coming up today on The History of Literature. go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. It's a genre month here at the History of Literature. Genre month. We've looked at romance novels and science fiction, and now we have the Western. Oh, boy. I'm fascinated by these things. I came to them through movies and television, of course, but I'm sort of fascinated by Zane Grey and Louis L'Amour and the idea that this was even a genre. Fantasy, science fiction, romance novels, those are all one thing. They can take place anywhere. They're a kind of fiction, but Westerns, wow, it's so specific. The time period is pretty well set, and the place is pretty confined. A whole genre of fiction right there in the Old West. 
but the problems with it are easily identified. We say they're about the frontier, but that kind of gives the game away, doesn't it? Remember our story of Nancy Reagan? She was the first lady for eight years, the wife of President Ronald Reagan, and George H.W. Bush, the vice president, got the nomination to succeed Ronald Reagan, and he said, we're going to have a kinder, gentler America. And Nancy Reagan was sitting in her box watching this speech, and she reportedly said, kinder and gentler than whom? Well, we say the Old West is about the frontier, or about the spirit of the frontier, and one can imagine a group of Native Americans saying, frontier for whom? There are other problems, too. And yet, along with the problems, there are opportunities. The genre didn't die. There was a glut of them, especially on television, and burnout, audience burnout. But the genre didn't die altogether. Like a phoenix arising from campfire ashes, a new kind of Western emerged and is still on the rise. But we'll get into all of that, and we will talk more with author Anna North. Anna stopped by to talk about her forthcoming book, Outlawed which uses some tropes of the Old West, but is a very different kind of story from the classic Western. It's a contemporary story set in the past. Takes the point of view of a woman who is an expert in midwifery. And she talks about another book that she admires, C. Pam Zhang's How Much of These Hills is Gold, which came out earlier this year tells a story of two Chinese siblings making their way through the American West. We're going to have a full episode with Anna North when her book comes out in January, but in this episode, we're going to hear a couple of excerpts from our interview with Anna. We'll hear her thoughts about working in the Western genre in general, and then her discussion of Jang's book. But first, let's go through the history of the Western. If we're looking for origins, we might go back to James Fenimore Cooper, the early American writer who wrote stories of Natty Bumpo in a series of novels called The Leather Stocking Tales. These are from the early 19th century. They were not that West by today's standards. They were set in the former Iroquois areas in central New York. Some said these books and this character was inspired by Daniel Boone, the explorer, and it's telling the history of white Europeans as they push their way from the East Coast colonies into what was from their perspective, the frontier. This isn't about the president or Congress. It's not about mayors of cities. It's not about merchants or plantation owners. It's about a man on the front lines of this movement. Natty Bumpo is an Anglo-American who was partially raised by Native Americans and uses a long rifle. He was quote-unquote brothers with a Mohican named Chingachgook. The novels were a huge success both in America and Europe. You might know some of them. The Deer Slayer, The Pathfinder, The Pioneer, The Prairie, and The Last of the Mohicans, which is probably the most famous. Did I say The Pioneer? I think it's The Pioneers. But The Last of the Mohicans is the one I came to know, along with The Deer Slayer at one point. There's been some movies about The Last of the Mohicans as well. Natty Bumpo has been compared to some of Walter Scott's heroes in his historical mythologizing of the Scottish Highlands. We see something similar in Japan, too, as the cowboys and outlaws and sheriffs of the Old West, once the genre moves there, have similarities with the Japanese samurai and ronin. 
The tropes here are familiar to everyone once we get to the classic Old West, I think. A nomadic cowboy or gunfighter who rides a horse accompanied only by his revolver and his rifle. He's wearing a Stetson hat with a bandana around his neck. He's got cowboy boots on with spurs. And the landscape now is the arid, desolate world of the desert and mountains, the plains, the ranches, the small frontier towns, the little railroad stations, maybe a post office, maybe a sheriff's office. Maybe there's a military fort, definitely a saloon. Outside the town, there are Native Americans living on the land. Maybe they're causing some trouble. Maybe they're just out there as a potential danger. The cowboy sleeps by a campfire and sings or whistles or plays the harmonica. Let's call this the classic Western setting. And the plots here are familiar to a robbery of a train or something in the town, a bank, a saloon, some kind of crime going on, disrupting the social order. Or the advent of the railroad or telegraph line that's going to disrupt the way of life of the frontiersmen. Gold might be discovered somewhere, bringing along greed and violence. We might see ranchers who are taming the wilderness, building an empire, maybe fighting off rustlers. Maybe the story is one of abduction. The Indians who have taken someone, or a revenge cycle between Indians and the white American settlers. Maybe the cavalry is fighting Native Americans and the cowboy gets caught in the middle. Maybe we're in the Southwest. Maybe we have Mexicans as well. Maybe there's an outlaw gang living by its own rules. Maybe there's a bounty hunter who's on his way to get the bad guys. A lot of rich plots here. And even so, there was such a glut of these on American television in the 1960s that the audience kind of burned out. That's usually what's accredited uh, or discredited with the fall, for the fall of the Western. American television showed too many of them. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Let's go back to the fiction. During the second half of the 19th century, dime novels told stories about Billy the Kid and Buffalo Bill and Jesse James. This was an interesting period, as some of these individuals were still alive. Wyatt Earp, for example, was becoming a myth, even when he was still alive. We've moved further west now, as the frontier has, and we start to see some of the now-familiar tropes and plots. By the first half of the 20th century, we not only have popular writers like Zane Grey, whose Western novels sold more than 40 million copies, we have movies as well. Zane Grey's real name was Pearl Zane Grey, and he was from Zanesville, Ohio. His most famous book was 19, his 1920. Sorry, 1912 novel, Riders of the Purple Sage, and it was made into a movie in 1916. And from then on, Zane Grey and Hollywood worked hand in hand. Grey eventually formed his own motion picture company to try to control the way his books were used. He also appeared as himself in some movies. Once again, the Western author was part of the scene. A real-life character was immersed in the actual landscape, or the movie landscape, Hollywood was booming, and Westerns were a huge part of that. 50, sorry, 50 Zane Grey novels were converted into 100 Hollywood movies. It's hard to overstate the influence of Zane Grey on this field. He was Dwight D. Eisenhower's favorite writer. Earl Stanley Gardner, author of Perry Mason, said, quote, Gray had the knack of tying his characters into the land and the land into the story. There were other Western writers who had fast and furious action. 
But Zane Grey was the one who could make the action not only convincing, but inevitable. And somehow, you got the impression that the bigness of the country generated a bigness of character. End quote. Haywood Brune was one of the critics who didn't like the Zane Grey books. From his Manhattan perch, he said, quote, The substance of any two Zane Grey books could be written on the back of a postage stamp. End quote. And that becomes a problem for the Westerns. Audiences love the big character, the bigness of character, the bigness of the country, the clear moral picture. The white hat versus the black hat, heroes and villains. But the stories repeat themselves, and they become predictable, and they grow tiresome. People look for something more. They look for more accurate history, for a greater moral dilemma, more complexity, Surely there's something flawed about that sheriff, and surely there's something redeeming about that outlaw. Movies and dime novels and comics and pulp magazines were still popular into the 1950s, and Louis L'Amour arrived and kind of took the baton from Zane Grey into the 1970s, and television was, for a while, dominated by shows like Bonanza and many other westerns. But then there were some new improvements, and adult westerns came for the first time, sex entered the picture, and then more mature works, Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove and Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. And there were movies that told a more complex story of the Old West. Revisionist Westerns, sometimes called anti-Westerns or post-Westerns, started in the early 1940s, but really came of age in the 60s and 70s. Filmmakers like Sam Peckinpah and Robert Altman and Arthur Penn And later, Clint Eastwood said, hang on, where's the morality here? Maybe the outlaws are actually the ones we should root for. Maybe the cavalry is not the the portrait of clean-handed morality. Aren't they actually the agents of theft and genocide? If they're mistreating Native Americans, shoving them aside, are we supposed to cheer for that? If a sheriff shoots a bank robber in cold blood, is that justice or is that murder? What if the outlaw is standing up for the downtrodden? What if the sheriff is the represented representative of the authority, of the man, of the forces of greed? There's a gray area here. It's much richer to explore it that way from a literary perspective. We shouldn't just cheer for the white hats like Pavlovian dogs. We should question power and authority and the exploitation of the land and different groups of people. Now we enter into a different area with these revisionist westerns. We can examine the American project and see what it's up to. Has it been an exercise in greed? Who does it protect and how? Who does it privilege and is that fair? What role does it give to women, to people of color, to dissenters? What's redeeming about the actions of the people who are moving west? We still have the landscape. We still have the feeling that maybe the rules are looser out here where the population is less dense, the wilderness is harsh, people are left alone, there's room to explore. But we have different points of view now. We try to see things from multiple angles. We don't take any of the angles for granted. That's where we are now. And that's where Anna North is. Let's take a quick break, then come back with part one of our conversation with the author of the forthcoming novel, Outlawed. In this part of the conversation, we talk about her take on the Western genre. 
grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Anna North, a journalist and novelist whose journalistic work currently focuses on reproductive health and the politics thereof. Anna is the author of three novels, America Pacifica, The Life and Death of Sophie Stark, and a new novel, Outlawed, which has been described as The Crucible Meets True Grit. Anna North, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so this fits right in with our Thursday theme that we're doing. We're doing literary genres this month. We've done romance novels, we've done science fiction, and I really wanted to do westerns. I know we're no longer in the peak years of westerns, but they still loom large in our consciousness in television and films, if no longer quite as strongly in book form, or at least not in the Zane Grey or Louis L'Amour dime store paperback classic western form. So when you were setting out to write your third novel, what drew you to the Old West? Um, yeah, so I'd actually, I originally got the idea for this novel. It was a few years back. I was actually um, walking with a friend um, in, you know, sort of a woodsy area in New Hampshire. So, you know, here in the Northeast, um, yeah. I live in New York City. And uh, we visited um, an old Shaker dwelling. So the Shakers were a group of people you know, sort of a separatist group of people, and they uh, they chose to live by different rules than the rest of society. Um, they, for instance, didn't marry and they didn't have children. Um, mm. I got really interested in this these ideas of sort of separatist groups, people living outside of, you know, more traditional society, which kind of got me thinking about outlaws. Mm. Mm-hmm. As I was sort of doing early drafts of the book, I was trying to set it, you know, where my friend and I had been um, in New Hampshire, but I'm from Los Angeles and, um, you know, sort of the landscapes of the Western United States um, have always been sort of easier for me to write about. It feels like home in a certain way. It feels like there's a richness of experience there that I can draw on. Yeah. Um, and so I started thinking of Westerns also for that reason, um, you know, and, and as I as I did more reading and we can talk about this more, I started thinking about the ways that um, you can kind of subvert the Western genre or play with it and the ways that different authors have done that across history. 
Yeah, right. Okay, so let's, uh, boy, there's a lot to unpack there. I feel like you answered about my first six questions. (laughs) Very uh, compact and concise uh, answer there. So uh, let's talk about, well, let's talk about the landscape. So what is it, uh, do you think, about the Western landscape that's made it so rich for, uh, as a setting for these works? There's a particular kind of beauty, and it's also, um, you know, I think... There's a way in which, you know, sort of high culture in the United States, if you want to put it that way, can be very centered on urban centers, can be very centered on, you know, the Northeast. And so I think for like folks who live in New York City and maybe the publishing industry, you know, some people who sort of were, you know, perhaps in past times and to some degree still kind of the arbiters of high taste or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. you know, the the West feels far away in this way and, and you know, even exotic. And we can talk about how that's problematic. Um, but it's also true that, you know, that the landscapes of the West are just very different from, you know, if you're walking around New York City today or here I'm, you know, looking out my window in Brooklyn. Um, and I think, I think for me, just personally, it's also about homesickness. You know, I, I haven't actually been able, um, you know, it's been obviously a strange year for for everyone in a tragic year and I haven't been able to go home to California this year and so just now my book is done but when I talk to you or when I when I talk about the book there's a real homesickness for those landscapes and even though you know when I was writing it we weren't yet in COVID it was a different time when I could travel and see my family and see my hometown I, I think there was still kind of a homesickness for me that led me to think about you know some of the even just you know birds and animals that you can see in in my case in California but then when I was researching the book I also traveled uh, I traveled to Wyoming I went to the hole in the wall valley mm. which we can also talk about more but thinking back to um you know the birds and animals that I saw there and just sort of the um you know the red rock formations. It's this very, very powerful, like arresting visual imagery that, um, you know, really stays with me even now that the book is long finished. Yeah. Does it feel to you, speaking of it today, does it feel to you like a frontier and like a vast open space or does it feel sort of tamed and as if the wildness of it and the the emptiness of it has been now that, that that's just part of the past? Right. I mean, this is something that I think um, I think that, um, you know, more contemporary novelists have really explored with really interesting results is like the question of what is what is a frontier. Right. I Mm -hmm. mean, so, you know, for for Europeans and for people, you know, who consider themselves Americans or, you know, U.S. citizens like the West was a frontier in a way in the 19th century. But obviously for indigenous people who already lived there, it wasn't necessarily a frontier or there might have been, you know, different internal frontiers that they might have might have come across in different Mm -hmm. regions. Um, But you know, the Amer- the American West kind of only makes sense if you think about it from a perspective of I'm like probably a white person, you know, looking west from from the east and probably from the northeast. Um, so already it's like this funny, you know, a very kind of Eurocentric or U.S. centric idea of what is a frontier is like baked into the conventional Western. But there was this sense, too, that in the West, there were certain rules um, from the east that didn't apply. So, mm-hmm. for example, um in the Western states and territories, um, women, specifically um, white women, um, you know, women who had U.S. citizenship, they were often able to vote before before women in the East were. And, you know, there were sometimes sometimes other things that, you know, were freer or people, um, you know, people could kind of flee the East and go out West and do things they might not have been able to do. Uh, it's a similar, you know. We've we've seen similar stories throughout sort of colonialism, right, where people people would flee their initial places and go somewhere else where they might have had more freedoms. And that, that is a really interesting dynamic to explore. And at the same time, you have this conflict where 
those new freedoms often came at the price of the freedoms of the people who had lived there before. Mm. So in the case of the American West, it's indigenous nations who had lived on that land for a long time and, you know, suddenly found themselves being kicked off and, and finding their land dispossessed and colonized. So it is like, I, I think there are all these contradictions. When you look at the West, some of the contradictions that kind of underpin the entire country of the United States, I think they're just really magnified when you look at what we think of as the American West. Right. We are now, I guess, several decades into a kind of revisionist look at at the Western, but it seems like for a 21st century author in particular, there's just a whole layer of complexities that go along with it. Did you find that kind of the Western uh, genre and readers' expectations would be you, you mentioned it almost like it would be a sort of uh, opportunities for you of things you could subvert or correct or, or play with. But did you find it to be a burden to know that, you know, readers would come into it expecting one thing based on their conception of the West? Right. I mean, not a burden necessarily. I think, you know, I think there's been this really interesting movement for, you know, probably much longer than I've been paying attention to it, but I've probably been paying attention to it now for like almost 20 years, a movement in sort of literary fiction towards reexamining some things that were once thought of as genre fiction. And, you know, how can Mm. we, how can we reimagine these things? How can we kind of, um, you know, bring some of some of what's interesting about literary fiction and also add in some of what's interesting about these genres. So we saw this, you know, we've seen it with mystery, we've seen it with comics, you know, we've seen it um, in science fiction. And this is actually something, um, you know, a lot of a lot of writers who I sort of came up with, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about Alice Sola Kim, um, I'm thinking about, you know, just a lot of folks who I'm actually, you know, now in a writing group with and, and folks that I went to school with at various times. So writers who kind of, literary writers who kind of came of age, you know, maybe in the, in the 2000s and the 2010s. I think that a lot of us have sort of been thinking about what is literary, what is genre, how do we play with these things? And so that's always sort of been part of my thinking when I'm starting a new book is like this idea of like, you know, yes, maybe in some ways this is going to be a literary novel, but I'm always kind of in the back of my mind have the idea that there are genre tropes available to me that that I could I could experiment with. And a lot of that is due to writers who came before me and like writers that I kind of grew up with in a creative way. And one thing when I was starting to write this book is, you know, I hadn't really tried that on the Western before. Um, in America Pacifica, that's a dystopia. So I definitely played with a lot of a lot of science fiction elements. And that's a genre that I worked in and worked around for a long time. But I hadn't ever really thought about doing it with the Western. So that was kind of an interesting formal and genre challenge for mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. as a writer. And you know, I didn't think too much, I guess, about what readers' expectations are of Westerns, because as you kind of mentioned, there aren't actually a lot of conventional Westerns being written today. So I think people may have this old-timey view of what a Western is, but you don't really have, you know, Zane Grey anymore. So right. in some ways, it's a little ripe for a reinvention. You weren't expecting your reader to be plucking your book out off a rack at a grocery store or something and, and being confused or anything like that. It's it's pretty comfortable, uh, comfortably placed in the literary fiction category. And, and people are aware that what they're going to be getting is probably not going to be just a, a conventional formulaic full of cliche uh, white hat, black hat with a, a showdown at, at high noon or anything like that. Right. And I mean, there's not like the, uh, you know, Western style in the bookstore anymore. Not that yeah, a lot of bookstores right. are even open, but <laughs> if if they were, there wouldn't be. So um, I, I think it's something that like, I, I sort of hope that for my audience, they would know that they're going to get something a little different. Mm-hmm. 
we'll pause there. We'll be back with part two in a moment of our conversation with Anna North. But let me run through some of the offshoots of the Western genre. We might attribute these to Hollywood. The Western is really a Hollywood product, like the gangster movie. And just as we see organized crime movies in, say, Hong Kong, we see the Western transforming itself into books and films around the world as artists borrow from the plots and characters and place them into new settings and scenarios. In addition to the classic westerns, Billy the Kid and Jesse James and Wyatt Earp and the OK Corral and all of those, we have comedy westerns like the pale Face Bob Hope. We have electric westerns featuring rock bands and acid westerns which came out of the late 60s and early 70s which put a hallucinatory spin on the standard issue western other countries got into the action too italy made spaghetti westerns japan made ramen westerns when they weren't making samurai stories the germans made the winnetou series with an apache hero in the lead role india made bollywood westerns australia made meat pie westerns in mexico they made chili westerns The former Soviet Union made Osterns, or Eastern Westerns, which often showed the American Indians as oppressed people fighting for their rights. uh, There have been Kung Fu Westerns, Fantasy Westerns, Science Fiction Westerns, Space Westerns, Pornographic Westerns, Snow Westerns, Weird Westerns, North Westerns, those take place in Alaska or Western Canada, Horror Westerns, Florida Westerns, also known as Cracker Westerns, Singing Cowboy Westerns, and now, of course, Contemporary Westerns or Neo-Westerns like Brokeback Mountain and No Country for Old Men and Rango, and works like the two we're discussing today with Anna North. Her book, and now let's return to our second excerpt from our discussion with Anna, where she talks about C. Pam Zhang's book, How much of these hills is gold? Okay, so let's move to the uh, books. I asked you to choose a couple books for us to talk about in this context. And you mentioned one, C. Pam Zhang's book, How Much of These Hills is Gold, which is a novel that came out earlier this year. Two Chinese siblings are let loose into the American West. What do you admire about the way that Zhang is able to use the Old West? Yeah, I really love this book. And I think I'll I'll just start by saying I found just the setting incredibly evocative. You know, I think that's not always true in in literary fiction and it doesn't even always matter. You can you can read a book that's wonderful and the setting is just kind of whatever, or it's just a backdrop, but I felt like I could really breathe in um, you know, specifically gold country and sort of the motherload and um, you know, I'm I'm put I'm putting this in in northeast California here and I hope I'm not I, I hope I'm not like slightly mismapping the book, but that's that's the map I was picturing mm-hmm. and just those sort of, you know, the parched hills and the smells and the animals just like I I found so so well done that I was almost tearing up thinking about, you know, how long it's been since I've been out West. Mm, yeah. So, so that aspect is just incredibly well done, you know, and then it, it does this really interesting thing of like telling, you know, telling this beautiful and like really like deeply sad family story 
that's also a story of the land of the West and the sort of like multiple thefts of that land, I think is like, is really well evoked here. You know, the initial theft of that land from indigenous people, but then there's also theft, you know, without giving too much away that the central family also experiences this, this real theft um, by white people. And so, so the theft, you know, not, not just that sort of like the initial theft of this land from the people who live there, but then all the ways that, you know, that essentially like white colonizers came in and stole from everybody else in those territories, whether it was immigrants who came from China, whether it was indigenous people, black people who were also in those territories. That sounds like a lot to encompass sort of historically and sociologically, but Mm. the book just really gets at that in, I think, really interesting and nuanced ways. Right. Part of this is like when you watch a movie with your kids, for example, maybe your your child isn't old enough yet, but when you watch a movie, you, you know, you go back to some movie that came out in the 50s or something, or if I were to pick up a Western from the 50s, I'm sure there would be parts in it that would just make me cringe, either because the stereotypes would be so clumsy or there would be such a, a an assumed kind of attitude toward Native Americans or people of color or, or just, you know, something else that would just make me cringe. And part of reading a a contemporary work by a 21st century author is hopefully that they will avoid that kind of a cringeworthy moment where they're making these kind of assumptions. But the other thing that is even better, I think, is that it just adds these layers of complexity and you feel like you're learning so much more and you feel like you're seeing things from a different way and and it just makes the reading experience that much deeper. Uh, It sounds like that's what we could expect from a book like How Much of These Hills is Gold. Definitely. You know, when I think people think of a sort of conventional Western, it's like white dudes with guns and they're shooting. And then if, for example, if indigenous people appear, you know, they're probably like heavily stereotyped. They might be dressed in in clothes that they would never wear in that time period or in that place. They might be either like a villain or they just get killed off. And, you know, other than that, it's basically just like white guys shooting each other, probably. Mm-hmm. And I think the strength of um, the strength of how much of these cells is gold and, um, you know, there there have been a number, I think, of other of other books and also, um, you know, movies and TV to some degree also that have said, like, look, it was never like there's never a universe where it was just these white guys in the American West and then maybe an occasional like supporting player that's like this heavily stereotyped Native American person. Right. This has always been a diverse place. There were always like tons of stories there, tons of different stories, tons of fascinating stories. It kind of come back comes back. I mean, just what you were saying reminded me of something that, you know, people say a lot about journalism, but I think it's true in fiction too around diversity and representation that like diversity and representation aren't just aren't just a moral imperative, right? It's like although they are, it is good and moral, you know, to have diverse books and diverse writers and diverse perspectives. Um, but it's also like a like a quality thing that you're just gonna have better literature and a better literary canon if it is a more diverse one. And you know, that sort of goes back to what you were I think saying about, you know, the richness of stories and the nuance of stories is that like we just we just have a better, richer, more nuanced array of stories to read and look at when we recognize that some of the stories that we were told and like, you know, I should own as a white person, like the stories that have been told by white people and valorized by white people, including white women, you know, that these stories are not the only stories. And, you know, that by contrast, like perhaps they're a very, very small part of the real story that's always been going on. Right. People might think, oh, you update the Western genre 
So here's what you do. You have a woman who can drink the men under the table and she can shoot better than any of the men. And she's actually braver and they make her sheriff. And that's, you know, that's all you need to do. And instead, what we're talking about here is something that's much more historically interesting and and realistic and and just gives real layers of what people of that time and and how things actually were during that period. I I think how much of these hills is gold, although it plays with history in interesting ways. So, for example, the chapter headings um, are dated, but but that'll it'll say like XX62 instead of 1862, which, you know, I'm, I'm very curious about and need to maybe read more about and figure out if, the, if that's a device to maybe suggest that, like, could this story be happening at a totally different time mm. um, or in a totally mm-hmm. different place? But I do think it, it feels grounded in the real history in a serious way. But I should say, too, that it's also just like a really good story and it's just like really engaging to read. And I think stories of people trying to survive, stories of people living in a really new place, stories of people living in this physical environment that can be kind of unforgiving. There's things about the quote unquote Western, you know, that just kind of like make for good narrative. Yeah, definitely. I think I think Zhang explores that. Um, And that's something I really tried to explore, too, in my book is like I wanted to kind of I wanted to deepen and question the idea of what is a Western. But I did, you know, really also want to tell a fun story and like try to have fun with it, try to have fun with, you know, the ideas of genre. I mean, the book deals with these really serious things, but it's a novel I want. I, I want to entertain, and and so I I did I did try to do that and try to sort of think about like what is fun about these kinds of stock stories that people tell. Why do people keep telling them? What are what are the good and interesting elements you can kind of maintain and use to your own devices? Mm. Okay. There we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Anna North, whose new book, Outlawed, is coming out next year. You may have thought that interview ended a little abruptly. That wasn't actually the end of it. When the book is out, we're going to run our full interview with Anna, in which we talk more about her novel, her love for crazy cat comics, and a surprise bonus question. We're teamed up with LitHub Radio and The Podglomerate. You can find that at www.thepodglomerate.com. You can find us at historyofliterature.com or on Twitter at TheJackWilson. That's Jack with an E. And Mike Palindrome, our old friend, tweets at LiteratureSC. That stands for Literature Supporters Club. We're also on Patreon.com slash Literature if you'd like to help support the show. It all helps out people every little bit, although I do enjoy making these available for free. I appreciate the generous patrons who have helped to make that possible, along with our advertisers. We're headed toward Thanksgiving and Christmas, which means some good content coming up, including our Thursday theme for December, which I think is going to be a special Christmas present to myself. If you know me well by now, you might be able to guess who that will involve. We do have one more Thursday theme this month for genres, although we're going to bring you that next week. Not going to tell you what it is yet. Maybe I haven't quite decided. I've gotten a few guesses already, and they've all been wrong. Sorry, folks. I zag when others zig, and vice versa. Or should I say... Versa Vice. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
the Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.